morning's message is a rerun from a sermon series we did about the life of Joseph back in 2018. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew so far this year, or this, this fall, but we're going to jump all the way back to Genesis. So if you were with us when we were back in the YMCA setting up and tearing down every week, you might remember this message. Uh, but I hope that whether it's your first time hearing it or your second, that it's meaningful for you. This is kind of a last-minute change for our service this morning, but sometimes the best things in life can be unexpected, right? <laughs> so when I was in college, I went on this men's conference trip to Minneapolis my sophomore year over Christmas break. A Minneapolis over Christmas break. Now, we'd been staying at a, a church that graciously allowed a bunch of college-age guys to sleep in their rec room. Uh, and when we arrived, we were told, make sure that you're back to the church before 11 o'clock tonight, because that's the time we're going to be locking the doors. Now, when I was in college, my habits and routines were set at a wildly different time than they are today as a dad in his 30s of three young, young kids. And it was pretty normal for me at that time and for most of my friends to eat dinner at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. Um, and so, of course, our body clocks went off around 10 o'clock and we became hungry for dinner. We decided that we were going to run out and try and grab a quick bite to eat. But we set out without really considering what time it was or what time of year it was. And we very quickly became frustrated when we discovered it 10.30 at night on the day after Christmas, the only places open by this church were bars that wouldn't let us in as 19 and 20-year-old students. So we couldn't pop in for a bite to eat, but we explored another block or two, and we eventually found a Domino's pizza that was open for takeout. We we're like, perfect, this will work for us. So we quickly rushed in and discovered that we were not the only ones with this idea, and there was a long line of people who were ready to order. So dutifully, we made our way to the back of the line. I got in line between two men who were in their, looked like they were in their late 20s, who were very intoxicated. <laughs> they were having some very nonsensical argument about their girlfriends and manifest destiny, and I really couldn't follow how all of it went together, but they were very loud, and everyone was watching what these two guys were doing. So as they got closer to the register, their argument began to shift from something I couldn't understand to who was the hungriest. And when they got up to the front to order, they had worked themselves up into such a frenzy that each of them ordered the largest pizza that was on the menu for themselves. Now, predictably, one of these guys got his pizza before the other guys, and his buddy began to pester him for a slice. He said, dude, dude, give me a piece of your pizza. I am so hungry. I will give you a piece of my pizza later for a piece of your pizza now. And his friend responded, no way, man. I got pepperoni. You got like pineapple and gross stuff on your pizza. Well, his friend was like, well, whatever, dude, you got enough to share. I mean, what size is that anyway? And I kid you not, he did exactly this. A small. <laughs> so the, the whole place started chuckling just like that. But the first guy puts his finger right in his friend's face and goes, that is a blatant lie. And at that point, we thought for sure these guys were going to start fighting. But fortunately, before it could escalate farther, the other man's pizza came out, and they took their food and left. And then our food was given to us, and we took it, and we sprinted as quickly as we could back to the church. But unfortunately, by that point, the damage was done. It was after 11 o'clock, and we'd been locked out. Now, remember, it's like the middle of the night, the day after Christmas in Minneapolis. We were 
freezing and desperate to be left, let back inside. Well, after about 15 minutes of pounding on windows and yelling, a sleepy freshman came to the door and opened it up and let us back in. Kind of like a comedy airs, right? Everything that could have gone wrong, there did. And sometimes a series of unfortunate events like that can be kind of funny, right? We can look back on it and smile afterwards and laugh about how ridiculous everything was. It's part of being human, right? Sometimes things get messed up or they don't go according to plan. And if we can laugh about it, it makes it just a little bit easier. But sometimes life just doesn't go the way we hoped. It doesn't go the way we had planned. And it's, it's not something that we're really able to smile about or laugh about, right? Especially not when we're in the middle of those circumstances. Sometimes things are just plain painful. They're unfair. They're unjust. Right? How many times have you heard the expression, life's not fair, Right? It's something that almost everyone's heard, regardless of their background. And they know from firsthand experience that it's true. Well, like I said, this sermon is an older one that we did on the life of Joseph back in 2018. Now, Joseph's life is full of unfair moments. And today's passage specifically is Genesis chapter 39. Before this part of the story, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his own brothers. Right? Not, not a great like, situation to be starting into, but we're going to see that as we work through the story, things go from bad to worse for Joseph. But regardless of everything happens and in the middle of everything that, that happens, we see the enduring promise of a God who hasn't abandoned Joseph. That even in the hardest of his moments, in the worst points of his life, God is with him. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app you'd like to use, you can navigate over to Genesis chapter 39. That's where we'll be spending most of our time together this morning in scripture. And this is what it says. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Joseph's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had been there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and in, he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph." The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hands and ran out of the house. 
When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, he called to, she called her household servants. Look, she said to him, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him of this story. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you came, that Hebrew slave you brought has came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted favor in the granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything in whatever he did. This is God's word. Man, what a whirlwind, right? So previously, like way back in the beginning of the story of Joseph, we learned that Joseph's life starts bright and full of promise. He's part of a family that loves and honors the Lord. Joseph's birth itself is a miracle, and he's told that God has made him special and has a special plan for his life. Joseph has dreams and visions of being made great, having power and influence over his brothers. However, those promises upset the family dynamics, and Joseph's brother became jealous. And really, like, what brother wants to hear that his younger sibling has been promised by both his parents and by God to one day be the boss of all the other brothers, right? So in their jealousy, they steal his clothes, rip them up, use those clothes to fake his death, and then sell him into slavery, Well, verse one tells us about what happens next. Joseph is taken to Egypt and sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking official in the Egyptian government. In fact, his position as captain of the guard meant that he was responsible for maintaining the Egyptian prison system, and he actually had it on his own property. Verse two tells us that God was with Joseph, and that because God is with Joseph, he's successful in everything that he attempts for Potiphar. Slavery is this immense evil that's done to Joseph by his own family. But even in the middle of that painful circumstance, God hadn't abandoned Joseph. In fact, God showed so much favor to Joseph that in time we see that in verse 3, that Potiphar, who doesn't believe in God, doesn't know God, clearly sees and understands that God is with Joseph. Now, verse four through six take us through Joseph's progression and ascension in Potiphar's household, from slave to attendant to manager, to a person with authority over everything except for two things, his boss's meals and his boss's wife. Uh, This is what it says again, just a, a refresher. It says, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. 
So very quickly, Joseph becomes Potiphar's number two. Now, Potiphar strikes me as a guy who's a pretty effective manager of people. He recognizes Joseph's talent and entrusts him with a lot of responsibility. Personally, my experience is that the best leaders know how to delegate responsibility, share leadership, and maximize the people who work with them. Well, Potiphar does all of that. He earns his master's trust and respect, and other people begin to take notice, right? And that's what we see in verses 6 through 10. It tells us, now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed or even be with her. Now, often temptation finds us when things are going well and they're finally beginning to work out, when things are rolling. Joseph's no exception to that. Potiphar's wife starts to show interest in Joseph when he begins to have some power and some influence in her home. You know, just as a kind of a side note here, one of the ways that Scripture is unique among ancient texts, and one of the ways that it honors women is that most of the women in Scripture are referred to by name, right? Sarah, Mary. But Potiphar's wife doesn't get a name. She, like the view the writer has is so low and so unesteemed of Potiphar's wife that she's just referred to by her relationship to Potiphar. Now, there's, there's a whole nother message in this passage about temptation and our response to it, and we don't have time to really like, get into all of that this morning, but the key idea is worth sharing, that when temptation comes, Joseph resists with the truth about who God is and his relationship to him. Right, Joseph doesn't respond to temptation by saying, it's illegal, which it definitely would have been then and still today would be in the Middle East. He doesn't respond by saying, what if we get caught and has fear? No. Joseph's response here is, it would be a great sin against God. And he appeals to the God who hasn't abandoned him. Now, the temptation doesn't disappear or decrease in its intensity, though. We actually see that Potiphar's wife ups the pressure of her advances until she catches him one day alone in the house with nobody else around. Now, Joseph, he does the right thing, and he runs. He books it and flees from temptation and leaves Potiphar's wife holding onto his clothes that she grabbed him by as he tried to run in his swift exit. Now, in that moment, with Potiphar's wife screaming lies about him and holding onto his robe, Joseph must have felt pretty hopeless. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. This is the second time in his life that someone has ripped the clothing off his back and used it to make a lie about him look true. Now to Joseph, this would feel like a massive injustice, that after fighting so hard for even the smallest bit of success as a slave, he would once again be the victim of a conspiracy that's born out of jealousy. Now, in hindsight, we can see that God was at work, right? Joseph must have imagined that his ruler as, or that is the ruler of his brothers one day, that he would be doing that in his homeland with his family, But then his brother stole his coat, ripped it up, dipped it in blood, and used it to make his dad believe that that an animal had killed him so that nobody would go looking for him. 
But then Joseph steps into Potiphar's house. We see there's no mistake. God's still with Joseph. The promise still holds. Joseph has some success and some favor with both God and Potiphar, begins to build some influence in that Egyptian community. And maybe Joseph might have wondered if this is what God had intended for him until Potiphar's wife steps in and once again his clothing is a part of another conspiracy that leaves him in chains. Now the story of Joseph continues and when we continue on with it, in Genesis 41-42 we learn eventually Joseph gets decked out in the finest clothes and gold and jewelry when he finally steps into the position that God had prepared for him and prepared him for. But God literally allows Joseph to be stripped of his old roles and his old clothes and be ejected from one injustice to another until he finally lands in the promised spot for him. Even in slavery, even in prison, even when Joseph must have felt at his lowest and his most alone, God is with him. It's unmistakable to everyone who surrounds Joseph. As a brother, as a younger brother, his older brothers and family sees it. As a slave, his master sees it. As a prisoner, his warden sees it. Even in the pain and the isolation and the loneliness and the unfairness and the injustice, God is with Joseph. And isn't that good news for us? Right? This is great news, right? We see that pattern throughout Scripture. A faithful person who loves the Lord is allowed to suffer injustice for a period of time, but isn't abandoned by God. Right? We see it in Moses, who in his passion for God's people sins and kills a man and is sent into the desert for 40 years, ultimately culminating with this experience of him being literally in the presence of God at the burning bush. We see it in the persecution of the disciples who, in the power of the Holy Spirit, were courageous and strong to winning others to Jesus, even when the government itself tried to wipe him out. We see it in the life of Jesus, who literally was the victim of the world's most unjust trial that led to his death sentence, dying that unjust death to spare us from the justice of a perfect God. We also see it in like the entire story of the Bible when we take a wide-angle view at it, right? Mankind created by God to love him and be with him but falls into sin in Eden when they disobeyed at the beginning of Genesis. Then Jesus comes and lived with us and died so that we wouldn't have to be permanently lost to sin and death and separation from a God who loves us. Then the Holy Spirit comes, dwells within us to lead us and comfort us when we experience those seasons of injustice in a world filled with pain and sin that so desperately needs a savior. And then finally, we read in Revelation that in the end, Jesus returns to sit on the throne and right all wrongs as perfect judge and triumphant king. And that is a comfort to my soul. Because like Joseph, we experience injustice sometimes at an intense and personal level. Maybe we're passed over at work, forgotten by a family member or accused of something falsely. You know, maybe we experience discrimination because of the color of our skin or the way our last name sounds. When we suffer personally like Joseph did, we can have confidence that God has not forgotten us. And sometimes it does feel, though, like we've been forgotten, doesn't it? I don't know if I've ever felt quite as hopeless as Joseph, but there have been times where I felt forgotten by God and abandoned. 
Now, I don't often talk about the season of my life very much, but there was a time before I, I started working in schools where I was a pastor. You know, my exit from professional ministry, just vulnerably with you, was a rough one. I burned out pretty hard and began to miss the mark on some of my professional responsibilities. And when I finally left the church, it felt like I had failed God, and it felt like I had failed at this church that I loved and poured my life into, and I felt like I'd failed myself, like I'd missed my calling. And I've never had a moment personally in my life where I felt as alone and rejected as I did then. Joseph probably had feelings of, or moments of feeling like a failure too. But I imagine Joseph as an old man when he looked back on his life and reflected on those times where he felt most alone, that with the benefit of hindsight, he would be able to easily see that God hadn't abandoned him, but was rather working through those trials and circumstances and injustice to shape him and build into him in preparation for the work that God had planned for him. And even with the limited view that I have of my life, I can see looking back that in those hard times, well, especially in those hard times, that God was working, moving with a purpose, preparing me for the next thing. That's nice, but maybe you can't see that God's worked through your pain. Maybe when you look back at it, it just feels like a pointless struggle. I'm confident that Paul's right when he tells us in Romans 8, 28, that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So maybe you can't see it right now at this moment, but that doesn't mean that what you're experiencing or what you experienced didn't have a design by God for something. By God's grace, maybe at some point in your life, you'll understand why you were asked to go through that season of life. But all that to say that when we experience moments of injustice personally, we can have confidence in God and respond like Joseph did. Joseph stayed the course. He continued to trust that God was in control. And even though Joseph was being treated unfairly, God allowed Joseph to have success. Maybe not in the way Joseph would have wanted, but in a way that God was using to make himself known, be made great. Now, John Piper once said that when you say in the deepest possible pain, God is enough, he is good, he will take care of us, he will see us through this, he is our treasure, that makes God look beautiful. And that's exactly what Joseph did in Egypt. Joseph's life in the middle of those circumstances elevated God to his rightful place as the greatest good that could ever have been done or given to Joseph. You know, there's this, this perversion of the gospel that's being shared in our day that's, some people call it the prosperity gospel. It says that if you sow a seed in faith financially by giving a gift, that God will return that gift a thousand times over and bless you with wealth and riches beyond your wildest dreams. But that's not the gospel. Friends, that's idolatry. It's elevating the blessings that God gives above the God who blesses. And it's inconsistent with what we see in the lives of those who love God as told in scripture. Right, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And sometimes living in faith means that we'll suffer injustice and pain like Joseph did, that it won't all be easy. 
And in those moments of deep and personal pain, Joseph turned to God and continued to love him in full view of a world that didn't know who God was. He loved God so publicly and so well that his master and his warden knew beyond a doubt who it was that was with Joseph. And as we suffer injustice, what an opportunity we have to share the gospel with a world that doesn't know our God. Right, when we have those periods of time where everything unfair just seems to keep piling on and there's no escaping the pain, we can turn and say, God is my strength and my portion. In those moments, our lives are some of the strongest evidence about the loving and personal nature of our God to an unbelieving world. Now, we can be ambassadors for Christ with incredible strength and incredible credibility because even when injustice and darkness presses in on our lives and it threatens to crush us, we can confidently trust in a faithful God who loves us even when our best laid plans seem to be falling apart. As humanity is as an entire people, we experience injustice too, right? One of the routines that I miss the most from my time before having kids was watching the news on TV. And my children right now, they're four and almost three and one, and they're just too, at too vulnerable of an age for me to turn on the six o'clock news, but you know, I still like to read it after they go to bed. And if you're plugged into any kind of news media, you know that the world is full of injustice, right? Right, when we see the news, we see things like war, famine, political unrest, human trafficking, police brutality, broken families, and racial inequality. Right? And in response to that, my heart just wants to cry out, God, where are you? Right? Sometimes it really feels like our world has been turned over to injustice that justice himself has abandoned us, that it's categorically part of the human experience and that there is no escape from hurt and from wrong. But through the story of Joseph, God whispers right back to us, I'm right here. I don't abandon. I don't forget. We can be confident that the God of the universe still has absolute power and authority in our world and that he's with those who are in pain. Romans 8.35 tells us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, what a comfort that is. What a promise. We can hold an unshakable faith that no matter how bad things might get, that no matter how bleak they might seem, no matter how alone we might feel, that God is always with us. And friends, we're not alone. We haven't been forsaken. And even in those moments of pain, we are still found safely within the care and love of a God who does not abandon us. A God who in the end rights every wrong and will be our father forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for never forgetting about us. 
that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus and then the Holy Spirit as a companion and friend in those times when we're suffering. And in those times of suffering, we know that you're with us, that we haven't been separated from you. Father, thank you for the example of Joseph, a person who remained faithful to you, even in the midst of what must have felt like being abandoned. For those of us who are in the midst of injustice and pain, we would ask for your presence and your comfort to be felt. We would ask that you would give us the opportunity to make you and your goodness known to a world that doesn't know you. And we thank you that you can use suffering to shape and equip us for the work that you've prepared for us. We also thank you that injustice isn't forever. We celebrate the victory that you will one day have over injustice and sin and that you will return to right all wrongs and make straight the crooked. We are eagerly waiting for you. Come soon, Jesus. Amen.